I'd first heard about the Brian Bowling case from Joey Watkins, who was also convicted of a murder in Floyd County and whose case I'd previously investigated. Joey had been in prison with both Lee Clark and Kane Story, and what he knew about the case came from his conversations with them. And one of the things he told me about was how Lee had once confronted Kane and demanded to know what had really happened that night that Brian Bowling died. Yeah, so Joey told me that you had played Monopoly once and he uh, lost it. Yes, I thought the transcript book hit him in the head with it. I said, man, I am sick of this shit. You're going to come clean right now and tell me what happened in that damn room. I'm sick of it. And they still told me the same thing. Him and Brian was in there playing around with the gun, and Brian shot himself. So you know if you've got a 38 revolver and you're looking at it, and you're looking at that cylinder, you can tell where the bullet's in. Uh, he says that's what they were doing, looking at it, spinning it around, making sure the bullet wasn't there, and then cocking to their head and pulling the trigger. He said they've been smoking weed. They're doing this, they're laughing about it all like it's a joke, like it was so funny. Lee and Kane have spent many of the years since their conviction at the same prisons together. They've had a lot of time to talk. Lee told me that every time he's asked Kane about what happened to Brian, Kane has given him the same answer. But he said he still has his doubts. I've been here for 25 years and I don't know what the hell went on in that room. I want some closure for myself too. I'm sitting here, the only person that knows what happened in that room for sure is Kane's story. Kane's story and Brian Bowling, they're the only two people that know what happened in that room. And he's the one person in this case that I'm not sure we're going to be able to talk to. This is a prepaid collect call. To accept this call, press 1. Hello? Hi, Kane? Yes, this is me, yes. This is Susan. Okay. Thanks for giving me a call. Hi, my name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and podcaster, and previously I hosted the Undisclosed Podcast. Hi, I'm Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. Last year, Susan and I decided to team up and reinvestigate the murder of Brian Bowling. Along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, we decided to launch Proof. You can listen to Proof like you would any podcast, and you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Proof. It had been more than a year since we began investigating this case, and I still hadn't spoken to Kane's story. He knew I was working on the case and wanted to talk to him. He'd written letters, and his mother June had passed along my request for him to give me a call. But still nothing. I was starting to think that we might never hear from the person who was there in the room that night when Brian was shot and killed. Then, one day, out of the blue, my phone rang. It was Kane's story calling. I know you probably heard a thousand times over, but I'm serious. It was a game of Russian roulette. It really was. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I wish, I wish to God that I never would have been down there. That was just some stupid teenage shit, to be honest. I don't know any way to play. I mean, sure. I talked to Lee at length, but there's a lot of that he doesn't know. Yeah, because he wasn't there. I mean, he he knows enough. 
I was there. I know what happened. I mean, I saw my own two eyes. Like, you don't know. I mean, nobody really knows but me. You know what I mean? He, Lee don't know. Nobody knows. I asked Kane to tell me what had happened that night. And he told me the same thing I'd already heard from Lee and his brother Jamie about how that evening had begun. The three of them had been hanging out, driving around together, until finally it was time for Kane to go home. Lee and Jamie had dropped him off at the Silver Creek Mini Mart, and Kane started walking back to his parents' trailer on the other side of the cemetery. He still had his father's 38 revolver in his pocket, which is why, he says, when he passed by Brian's trailer, he decided to stop in. That's why I'm watching what Brian does too, because he always said if I ever had any gun, he'd like to see it. So I'm walking to Brian's house, and I swear that that little voice in my head said, don't take that gun in the house. And I look up at the sky and say, I'll be all right. I walk in, and I said, all right, so where's Brian at? He's, he's, he's in the back room. I said, all right. I went back out on the door. And he's like, who is it? I said, it's me, man. And he said, uh, come on in, buddy. And, um, he just got to be scared, but it's just still just to me now. Uh-oh. And, um, he's like, he's like, you got a joint? I said, no. I'll tell you what I do got. And I pulled it out. Brian asked if Kane had a joint, and Kane told him, no, nah, but I'll show you what I do got, and pulled out the revolver. That's when he goes to drive by and they still do you got a shot. Yeah, I got one, I gave him he put it in there. Who who had the idea to play first? It was his idea. Kane told me that Brian had just been dry firing the unloaded gun at first. But then Brian had asked for a live round and Kane had handed him a shell. That's when Brian began to play Russian roulette. Only, Kane says, he was cheating at the game. And he starts Making, first, making sure it's nowhere around the cylinder, he's, he's, he's put into his hand, pulling the trigger. So were you playing for real, or did you know that... No, the first two times we knew the bullet was nowhere around. So you could see the bullet? So he's, yeah, yeah, we made sure it was nowhere near the chamber. And now, the whole time, he's on the phone with a girlfriend when he's doing it. I'm like, Brian, please, man, don't be doing that crazy shit. He, he does it again, and he's telling her what he's doing. Kane told Susan he was upset with Brian for playing with the gun like that. But he must not have been too upset about it. Or at least he hadn't been so upset that he wasn't willing to try playing for himself. You played Russian roulette as well? Yes, I did. I played it one time. He, he gives me the gun. Instead of me being a smart individual, I should have been and taking a damn bullet out. I, too, play the game. I sit down on the bed. And he's, he's standing up the whole time looking down at me. And I put it in my head, and I pulled the trigger. Now, granted, I didn't spin the cylinder, none of that stuff. If you're playing Russian roulette for real, you're supposed to spin the cylinder so that the single bullet ends up at an unknown position in the revolver. You're not supposed to look and see where it is before you pull the trigger. Because if you know there's no bullet in the chamber next in line to be fired, then you already know what the result is going to be. And Kane told Susan that's how they played the game for the first three rounds. Brian two times and Kane once. But Kane says that when he handed the gun back to Brian after his turn, that's when Brian decided he was going to play Russian roulette for real. He tells the green thing, hold on a minute, baby. Put the phone in his lap, grab the gun from me, said, it's not done, bro. Spins it, pops it in there, pulls it to, puts it to his head, looks at me. 
I said, well, I don't do it, but I think it's the one. He said, you think so, and that's when he pulled the trigger. Don't do it, bro. I think it's the one, Kane says, he told Brian. And Brian had told him, you think so? According to Kane, those were Brian's last words. Were you watching when the shot was fired? Yeah, I saw him. He's out Thank you for using Securus. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Lee Clark has heard Kane tell this story many times before, but he says he hasn't always believed it. There have been times when he has wondered if this story is a lie and if Kane actually did kill Brian. I've had my doubts about Kane, but over the years, I've come to really believe Kane for what he told me. And, it, and I'm going to tell you what makes me believe Kane, what makes me really just believe what he says. Mm-hmm. And it ain't nothing that Kane told me himself. That ain't what makes me believe Kane. What makes me believe Kane is that boy's girlfriend that was talking to him on the phone, and he told her he's playing Russian roulette. She ain't got no reason to lie. Kane, he would have a reason to lie, but she don't. Caprice Hyatt was Brian's 15-year-old girlfriend, and according to the investigators, she conspired with Kane and Lee to murder Brian. But Lee says the only time in his life that he ever saw Caprice was when she was on the witness stand at his and Kane's trial. In that trial, though, even when she was up for crying, I know from, the, from listening to this girl and after hearing all the testimony I heard, I said, well, they're definitely telling lies on this girl. Because one, one being, she, she don't know me. And second being, I ain't conspired with her to do shit. And this girl ain't up there faking these damn tears. She's really crying because she misses her boyfriend. And y'all up here trying to slander this girl's name with this bullshit. So and the, it kind of set, set in with me hard then, but I was still wondering with Kane. But as I thought about that stuff, as years went by and I started getting older and getting older, I said, there, man, that girl was not lying, man. That girl was telling the truth. That boy killed himself in that room. And I finally went to Kane one day and I told him, I said, look, man, I'm sorry about all this shit. I've been throwing it in your face all these years, drilling you about this shit with Brian. I said, I'm going to let you know right now, man, I'm done with all that shit, man. You never got to worry about me throwing this shit in your face anymore. Never got to worry about me drilling you on your shit. Look, I believe you, man. I love you like a brother, man, and I'm sorry. Lee says that Caprice Hyatt is the reason he finally decided that Kane did not kill Brian. He doesn't know whether he believes Kane, but he does believe Caprice. But Brian's family believes that Caprice has a very compelling reason to lie about what she heard on the phone that night. Do you think Caprice is guilty too? If it happened that way, yeah, she's just as much as guilty as they are. Do you know how, why or how she would have been? I believe she was there to keep him on the phone and distract him. But why would she have done that? I don't know, but I mean, why was she on the phone and kept calling back like she did? You know, I mean, I don't know, you know, it just was weird. Brian had spent the day out working with family friends Wayne and Charlie Childers. He didn't get home until that evening. 
And while he was out of the house, Caprice had called three or four times looking for Brian, something that in hindsight, Brian's family finds to be very suspicious. Yes, yes, she had called like four or five times. And she talked to Kenneth once. Do you remember that? Yeah. Do you remember what he said? I do. I think he said he's not here and I don't know when he's going to be home. You know, I think that's all he said to her. I think he testified that he was teasing her about Brian being with another girl. Oh, he probably did. There was some, I don't know who she was, some girl. I think Kenneth said like there was a girl that lived on the street. So he was, when, when Caprice called, he was like, oh, Brian's out with so-and-so. At the trial, both Kenneth and Amanda testified that it hadn't been unusual for Caprice to call that often. They also testified that the first time Caprice had called that evening, it had been Kenneth who answered the phone. And Kenneth had told her, Oh, Brian's not home. He's out at the movies with that girl down the street right now. Kenneth said that when she had called back a couple times more, he kept teasing her that Brian was on a date with someone else. When Brian finally did get home, Kenneth told him what he'd said to Caprice. Brian had immediately grabbed the phone and called Caprice back, telling her not to listen to Kenneth, that he was lying and he had been working all day, not on a date with another girl. And I think he said that Brian got home and I guess he talked to Caprice in the living room and he's like, don't listen to what Kenneth said. Yeah, he's, <laughs> yes, I do remember that now. He said, don't listen to what Kenneth said. He's always got something to say. He's <laughs> always going to mess with you. By the time of the funeral, Brian's family had become suspicious of Caprice and why she'd called the house multiple times that night. But when Caprice had tried to talk to Brian's family afterwards, Amanda told us that her mother hadn't wanted to hear from her at all. Why didn't she want to speak to Caprice? She just told her, she said, I just don't believe nothing. I don't want to hear nothing you have to say. You know, because Mama had, you know, she started thinking, you know, she was in it. She could have been part of it. I thought so, too. Why'd you think that? Because she was on the phone with him. Do you know what they said your role was? Just that I was I was made to keep him on the phone. Like, they were accusing me of being a part of the... Okay. Like, and, hey, you got to keep him on the phone so that you can do this and that and that. Like, I was part of their little plan. And I had no clue. I was, I was an innocent 15-year-old that ain't even never had a boyfriend before. You know, like, not no serious boyfriend, and he wasn't even a serious boyfriend yet. You know, he might have been. Caprice told us that she knows that Brian's friends and family suspect that she was somehow involved in plotting Brian's death. She's been dealing with the dirty looks for most of her life now. I mean, I got harassed in school from his relatives, people that knew him. Like, even after, like, years and years, I was already an adult. And I'm on Facebook, and they're messaging me talking about, do you ever even, do you know what today is? Do you ever even think about him anymore? Like, still, like, at me about it, you know? That hurt. I mean, it hurt me. Like, he was my sweetheart, you know what I'm saying? Like, and I, so that just tells me that they still, to this day, and there's just one girl that still, to this day, if I see her in public, she gives me that look. After we talked to Caprice, I told Lee about what she'd said and how she knew people still blamed her for Brian's death. Yeah, I've wondered about that all these years. I don't know the girl. I mean, the first time I seen her was in that courtroom. I've wondered how her life has been all these years. I've always wanted somebody to talk to her and get her side of it and see, see what it's been like for her. 
I can't imagine what she's been going through. She's probably been living pure hell. People looking at her thinking that shit about her. That pisses me off just think about that. I mean, she said the same thing you've always said. She didn't even know you. She she talked to Kane on the phone, but she she never. I'm not even sure she knew your name. No, we never met. I didn't even know her name until they brought it up in court. Kane had talked to Caprice a couple of times when she'd called while he was over there at Brian's, but Kane says he too had never met her in person before Brian's death. And all this about. His girlfriend being this, listen, the first time I ever saw her in my life was when she took a stand and testified of that. See, they lived across town. I mean, she lived across town in It's an alternative school. He, he couldn't go to Pepperell. So he had to go to school across town, an alternative school. That's where he met her. Like I said, when she took the stand, I'm like, damn, okay. Mine did pretty good for herself. <laughs> Caprice had gone to school at Cusa, on the west side of Rome. Brian was from Silver Creek, about 10 miles south of Rome. It was only because Brian had been sent to the A school over near Cusa that the two of them had even met. So even though Brian and Caprice had talked on the phone just about every day, they had only met in person a handful of times. She'd never gone to Brian's house, and he'd never gone to hers. I think the only other time I actually seen him in person was when he got his mom to bring me to my work at GMC Food Mart before they redone it. It was very small. Um, and then he was, we met at the Coke machines right there at the uh, lunchroom, like, and just sat there and drank our Cokes and talked, you know. It was, so it was a sweet thing. Shortly before Kane and Lee's trial, Caprice had been brought in and questioned by Sergeant Dallas Battle and District Attorney Tammy Colston. They made it clear to her that they believe she'd been part of the murder conspiracy. How did, during the questioning with Dallas Battle, like, how was he treating you? Very horribly. Like I, like I held a gun myself and killed him. You know, just treated me like I, like I was a criminal. Like I had actually done, was red-handed. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how he treated me. And I, I'll never forget that. Like, I, that was a horrible, did you feel pressured to like change your story? Change your story at all? Or, like, I, feel, I feel like that's what they. I did. I felt like they wanted me to lie to them. Like they didn't want to hear my story. They didn't want to believe what I said. They wanted me to be guilty. They wanted me to be doing what they thought I was doing. I remember, but like bawling, like breaking down, like I was. It was. It was terrifying for one. Although Caprice was on the phone when Brian was shot. She says she never heard the gunshot go off. Caprice told us that the DA was convinced she was lying about this. She was certain Caprice must have heard the gunshot. And she warned Caprice that if she testified in court that Brian had told her he was playing Russian roulette, she'd face prosecution herself. Did they tell you you were in trouble or say that it'd be like, would they threaten criminal consequences? They said, you know, you can uh, go to jail for, for lying in court, you know. They didn't use the word perjury. But, you know, that's pretty much how they put it. That you could go to jail for, lo- for telling yeah, for a story. Telling and if this telling. is what you say in court, you'll go to jail. You'll go to jail because you'll be lying. Kind of. Yes, that sort of thing. Yeah, like, no, you're lying. You know, you can go to jail for that if you testify in court and you get caught lying because you're sworn in, blah, 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 that sort of thing. But you didn't change your story. Not it. Because Did you consider truth. changing your story? No. In the end, Caprice was not prosecuted, either for the alleged murder conspiracy or for the threatened perjury charges. 
But as Brian's Aunt Melody told us, Brian's family believes that Caprice was allowed to get away with murder. But I, I mean, I do know that, you know, he felt like that it was pre-planned, that, you know, Caprice was calling Brian, getting him home, you know, them, that way they'd know when he got home. Because Josh came in after Brian got home. So why didn't they charge Caprice? Not that, did this. No, not that it was anything explained to me that was, that I understood. Right. I mean, I never understood why she was not on trial, too. According to Josh slash Kane, Sergeant Battle had wanted to put Caprice on trial. In fact, he'd asked for Kane's help in making that happen. Kane had been visiting family in Tennessee when the warrant was issued for his arrest, and Battle had driven there to pick him up and take him back to Rome. That's when Battle proposed a deal. You know, you know how he's, I mean, you ever heard him talk, you hear how he talk, he talk. You know, like Kane, we got a rock on a hard case Kane says Dallas Battle told him, We need you to roll on two people. And at first, Kane says, he hadn't understood who Battle was referring to. You need me to roll on two people. That's exactly what he said. I'm thinking going to what? No world. I'm thinking, because he wasn't saying, talking about, you know, that Lee knows the priest. I thought, really? <laughs> okay, what is this possible? He said Lee knew Caprice? Yeah, yeah, he said he said that was their whole theory, that, 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 that it was all conspiracy between me, Lee, and Caprice to have Brian killed because he knew too much about his faith. Kane says he was told that if he helped Sergeant Battle make a case against Lee and Caprice, they'd go easy on him for his sentence. A point is you can. He said, you'll come out smelling like a rose, Kane. Kane did not take the deal. I told Dallas Battle, train yourself to go back to your station. What are you doing? Play with yourself. I don't give a damn what you do, bro. I done told you what the hell happened. You didn't believe it then, so fuck you. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. If Kane had rolled like Battle had requested then it's likely Caprice would have been charged as well. Kane didn't do it. But even if Caprice couldn't be prosecuted, investigators still had to explain her away in order to prosecute Kane and Lee. They had to explain why she claimed to hear Brian say he was playing Russian roulette. And while one of their theories had been that Brian had been killed for narking on his fellow gang members about the safe theft, they had a second theory too. They told a number of people that the real motive wasn't a revenge gang killing. It was a lover's triangle. Exactly who they thought was part of the triangle is unclear. But according to the second theory, either Lee or Kane had secretly been dating Caprice. And they needed Brian out of the picture. Nobody's even, even got a motive behind this. 
I mean, I remember what the rumors were that I heard that her and Lee was both been dating, and I'm like, okay. Oh, you heard rumors about that? Yeah, I heard rumors about that, yeah. I mean, I heard rumors that you and Caprice were dating, so. I don't know, really? Yeah. We talked to Pete Jordan. That's the fourth boy who was involved in the safe theft, along with Kane and Lee and Joseph Wilkins. He's also an alleged member of the Freebird gang. But Pete told us that he hadn't been aware that the safe theft was supposed to have been the motive for Brian's death. What Pete Jordan thought the motive was, or what the what, what Dallas Battle's questioning left him with the impression of, is that the murder was over a girl, and that there was a girl Brian was seeing who was seeing someone else, and I don't know, some it's kind like of trying. There was like yeah, jealousy between Kane and Brian over a girl. Like, Dalton Road Northeast. As if when Battle questioned him, he he made Pete Jordan believe that Kane and Caprice had a thing going on, so therefore they conspired to kill Brian. There were a number of people interviewed by Sergeant Battle and Investigator Stewart who walked away from the interview thinking the same thing Pete Jordan had, that investigators believed Brian had been murdered because of some kind of lover's quarrel. Oh, David Stewart asked, did Caprice have anything going on with any other boys in that group? That was their theory. What, that I was messing around with somebody else? We talked to a jailhouse informant who was, he admitted that the police came and said, you help us, we'll help you. And he thought that the story was that Brian was killed because of a love triangle between you and one of the boys. After Kane and Lee were arrested and taken to the Floyd County Jail, investigators spoke to a number of inmates who said that either Kane or Lee or both had confessed to them. Almost all of these interviews have been lost. But when we went to the Floyd County Police Department to look at the file ourselves, we found one cassette tape that was still there. What we saw at the police department just now was like a one-inch file for a murder case that contained one cassette tape from a interview that never even made it into the trial documents, or it wasn't an exhibit. There's no transcript. It's a jailhouse informant who, it was not until 98, so much later on, just before trial. And it's the only tape there. And it was a little bizarre to hear Dallas Battle's voice. That may be the only record we get of it, given how much of the case file that Floyd County managed to lose. I'm sorry, Dallas Battle, Floyd County Police Department. With me here at Floyd County Jail's investigator, Danny Logan. We're going to be interviewing Ron. It is January 9th, 1998 at 7.35 p.m. Ron was not asked to testify at trial. That may be because he showed up too late to be of any use. It was right before the trial when Dallas Battle interviewed him. And that may be why this one tape exists, when everything else is now gone. It may be that investigators didn't even bother to turn this cassette tape over to the DA's office, so it remained in the police file all these years. Okay, will you tell me what you know about it? Okay, Lee and Clark had told me about the murder. He said that he's the trigger man. He shot the boy in the head in the right temple. The reason why they shot him because the boy knew something about a burglary. He had burglarized 
and that the girl that the boy was going with bowling, she set everything up. They told her to stay on the phone with him until they got there to kill him. And then when they got there, they shot him in the head with a 38 revolver. Did he say the girl's name? No, sir, he didn't. But it was her job to keep him on the phone? Yes, sir. That's correct. Sergeant Dallas Battle had wanted to use statements from inmates at the Floyd County Jail to prove that Caprice had been part of a conspiracy to murder Brian. It wasn't just the prosecution, though, who'd wanted to hear from witnesses who'd been at the jail at the same time as Lee and Kane. There was an inmate that the defense had wanted to call at trial as well. You know, well, made it so bad. It's okay. The one that was coming to testify for our, our behalf, he's dead now. But uh, James Mullen, mm-hmm. uh, he was actually he was coming to testify that they were actually paying people to come. See, he said that Dallas Battle tried to pay him, get his tire cut and everything, he come testify. James Mullins did not end up testifying. In fact, in the end, the only witness from the Floyd County Jail that the jury heard from was a guy named Danny. Danny testified that while at the Floyd County Jail with Kane, he and some other inmates held a mock trial with Kane about his case. Danny said they played judge and jury, and during his mock testimony, Kane had initially claimed that Brian had killed himself. But then, Danny said, Kane changed his story. Kane told the inmates who were pretending to be a jury panel that, quote, it might have been a, you know, a conspiracy, end quote. And then he said that Lee Clark also had a hand in it. Last year, Susan and I went to speak to Danny. He did not want to be recorded, but he was willing to sit down and chat with us for a bit. He seemed concerned about people knowing he had been a jailhouse informant, but he did remember the case. It was a really screwed up thing, he told us. It really was. In May of 1997, Danny had been in the Floyd County Jail when Sergeant Battle had come to him and asked him to give a statement about Kane's story. All of this, Danny told us, was built on the premise of, you help us, we'll help you. We asked Danny what he meant by that, and he said, that meant helping me with my criminal situation, which they did. So, Dallas Battle is super dirty, which we already knew. The facts are and coming. And the facts are coming through someone else. else. But Dallas Battle tells him the family is pressuring me. Right. They want these two boys arrested. They have to be in the same place at the same, same time. time. It has and to be intentional. Yeah. Like, he was pretty clear. Like, he didn't say, like, I I lied about what I heard because I was offered a deal, but he said all but that. Yeah. He said reduce time, reduce sentence. You help me, I'll help you. Danny told us that it had not been Dallas Battle who had told him or the other jailhouse informants about what investigators believed happened to Brian. Like how about he'd been shot through a window or how Kane had first claimed that Brian died playing Russian roulette. All that information had been provided to them by another inmate, an inmate who'd been chummy with both Sergeant Battle and the sheriff. He was the one who brought all of this to us, Danny said. So Dallas Battle hadn't needed to tell Danny any facts about the case. 
But what Sergeant Battle did tell Danny was that his statement needed to contain some specific elements, like how he needed to place Lee and Kane together at the same time, and how he needed to specify that Brian's killing had been intentional. Both Lee and Kane told me that they had never confessed to anyone. In fact, they don't remember even meeting any of these informants while they were at the jail. I don't, yeah, I don't know who he was. I, I, I was never in a dormitory with him. Yeah. I didn't know about none of them jail informers. I didn't know, I mean, hell, I, I, don't, even, I don't even really think any of them guys was in the same cell block with me. I think they uh, said them guys were in the E block, and hell, I was in H block. Danny told us that in the story he'd been told about Brian's death, there was supposedly a girl that had a key part in the conspiracy. And for what Danny had heard, it was bitterness over the girl that had motivated Brian's murder. But at trial, Danny had not been allowed to testify to anything about a girl being involved. The jury got to hear him say that Kane had confessed to the murder while in jail and that he and Lee had been part of a conspiracy together. But then, the judge decided that, under the Confrontation Clause of the U.S. Constitution, that was all the jury would be allowed to hear from Danny, so he was dismissed. Though, this also meant that the defense never got a chance to cross-examine Danny. But without the testimony of Danny or any other jailhouse informant, the only evidence the prosecution had to suggest that Caprice had any part in a conspiracy came from Angela Bruce. It was Angela who told police that Lee and Kane had attended a party while at her trailer, and while sitting around the kitchen table, had confessed to murder. Angela also said that, while the two boys were making this confession, Caprice had shown up at her doorstep, asking for Lee and Kane. We showed Caprice what Angela had said about her at trial. And Angela Bruce says, that's right. And that the signal was to go ahead with the plan to kill Brian. And she came up to my, this is Angela, she came up to my door, and um, that's how I, you know, recognized her. She has blonde hair. <laughs> I never had blonde hair in day of my life. Girl, my hair is dark. Look, this is color of my hair. I'm, but it could have been blonde back it's then. It's your color. But it was not blonde? Nope. And I mean, and uh, anybody who's seen me at the ask Brian's mama what color my hair is. And she came to my door and asked for Josh and Lee, and um, that's how I, you know, recognized her. That's she why has I didn't blonde hair. Because I never had blonde hair. Ever. <laughs> This was far from the only problem with Angela's statements about Caprice. In fact, in Angela Bruce's first interview, she didn't even seem to know that Caprice existed. She mentioned nothing about Kane and Lee leaving the party with a blonde girl. In fact, Angela first told investigators Kane had stayed at the party for four or five hours and left when the party ended. Then, a few minutes later, she changed her story and told investigators that, after Kane and Lee had confessed to murder, she had chased them out of her trailer with a knife. It was one week later, when she was interviewed for the second time, that Angela Bruce first mentions Caprice. She changes her story once again, this time telling Sergeant Battle and Investigator Stewart that Caprice had also been at the party that night, and that she'd brought another girl with her. Both girls were blonde, Angela said, and Caprice had driven up in a little blue or black car. She'd come to the door to ask for Lee and Kane, and then the two boys had driven off with her and the other girl. 
And then um, that they were talking about, you know, me going supposedly picking Josh up or something. I was like, a blue. I don't even know about it. I was a blue car. I mean, I'm 15. I don't even drive yet. You I know? Say, you don't have your license. Right. <laughs> In February of 1997, Caprice was 15 years old. She didn't have a license, let alone a car. And then there's Angela Bruce's testimony about how Caprice was actually supposed to be of assistance to the murder plot. Angela said Lee and Kane had told her that Caprice's job was to get Brian on the phone and then send them a special beeper message to let them know that Brian was there. I have to ask, did you have a beeper ever? No, I never had one. So you, you never got a beep from, from nope. Caprice? Nope. I've never had a beeper in my life. I've never even had a cell phone. You had no cell phone, no beeper? No, none of that stuff. I was 17 years old. What am I going to do with cell phone and beeper? <laughs> I can even call somebody and go to pay phone. No one I spoke to had any knowledge of either Kane or Lee having a beeper, and there's no indication that investigators made any attempt to show that these beepers actually existed. They never tried to get phone records or to find the beepers themselves. Not to mention, it's hard to see why Lee and Kane would have needed to involve Caprice here in the first place. Brian was in house arrest after all. He was almost always home. Lee and Kane had no reason to anticipate that they'd have any problems finding him. But there's a larger problem here with Angela Bruce's story. I didn't even know about this whole little Freebird thing, and I, I know nothing of Lee Clark, nothing of him. Had you ever heard his name before? No. Had you ever heard of Freebirds? No, none of that until after the fact. It's hard to prove a negative, and it's even harder to prove that 25 years ago, two teenagers from the same town absolutely positively did not know one another. But what I can say, after talking to lots of people who knew Lee and Kane and Caprice back then, is that there's no reason to think that Lee and Caprice had been aware of each other's existence. Or that Kane and Caprice had any contact beyond Brian passing the phone to him a couple of times while talking to her. The prosecution had one other piece of evidence, though, that would suggest Caprice was lying about what she heard on the phone that night. Because if Caprice is telling the truth, then Brian had been playing Russian roulette before he died, and the wound to his head should have been a contact wound. The bullet should have been fired while the revolver was in contact or nearly in contact with his head. But according to the prosecution, that's not what the forensic evidence showed. The prosecution presented evidence that the gunshot wound to the right side of Brian's head had been fired by a gun that was at least a couple feet away when it was fired. That would mean that Brian had not died while playing Russian roulette. It would mean someone else had pulled the trigger. And Brian's family remembers that the forensic evidence against Lee and Kane had been compelling. Based on the autopsy findings, Brian Bowling had not shot himself. What stands out to you now? The autopsy photos. And I think you mentioned that your brother was at the crime lab? Yeah, they took his body to the crime lab. I guess for the autopsy and everything. That's what I was. Mm-hmm. That's what I was told, you know. Because after they pronounced him dead, and they harvest his organs, they sent his body to the crime lab. Hmm. That's what they told you. That's what. Yeah. They'd actually. They didn't do an autopsy on Brian. They said they sent him to the GBI crime lab, and they had like uh, photos from an autopsy. I think they changed their minds. They never actually carried it out. 
really. You've seen the photos with the like the rods, the rods and stuff going through that. Yeah. And that was from Craig Burns, the coroner. But they told us that they had sent him to the crime lab. I'm almost positive they sent him to the crime lab. I know they sent him, or they told us they did. You know. Right. That's what Amanda thought too. Brian's family remembers an autopsy being performed, and that the results of that autopsy prove Brian had been shot by someone else. But there was no autopsy on Brian Bowling's body. There were no autopsy findings in this case, and the state never asked a medical examiner or other forensic expert to give an opinion on the cause and manner of Brian's death. And in case you're wondering, no, this is not just the way things are done down in Floyd County. As former Floyd County Police Officer Mark Corbin explained to us, this was very much not normal procedure for them. So in this case, <coughs> they never, there was no autopsy done. There was no autopsy done. Yeah, you seem surprised. Is that usually how they, like... That would be unheard of to me. It's, it, from when I was in investigations, I would never... I would think he was sent to the crime lab. No, there was no autopsy done. They had the coroner look at him at the funeral home. Then, there's no explanation for that. So that's not, to you, that's not like how normally cases would have been done. If I was a lead investigator, I would have a problem with that. If an autopsy had been done, we would know whether the revolver had been held against Brian's head when it was fired. We would know if the shot that killed him was consistent with a shot fired during a game Russian roulette. If an autopsy had been done, Leanne Kane might not have been charged with murdering Brian. But there was no autopsy. So instead of hearing from a medical examiner, the jury heard from Craig Burns. He was a funeral director who, in 1996, was elected the coroner of Floyd County. It was Craig Burns who decided that Brian Bowling should not be autopsied. And it was Craig Burns who testified that Brian must have been shot by someone else. Yeah. Well, since there was no autopsy, there was no medical expert, obviously. And they right. used his assessment that this was not a close-up shot and that it was fired at a distance. That was his assessment? Mm-hmm. That don't surprise me. I think you have to request the crime lab, right? They don't... The coroner calls the crime lab in, in our county. Okay. This is Craig we Burns. We don't have a medical examiner. Well, he's a... That's a whole different story. <laughs> we haven't talked to him yet. I'd, yeah, I'm sure he'd be willing to talk... Uh, he was, Craig could mess up a crime scene as good as anybody. He was famous for going into crime scenes and, and messing them up. Oh, no. And that's why he went to prison. Next week on Proof. So you're saying he basically he got up and lied to the court. Straight up lied. They tried to make it seem like it wasn't no contact wound. They tried to rule out the possibility of him killing himself. You know what I'm saying? They're throwing all, they're throwing everything in there, including the kitchen sink, to try to prove that there's no way he could have killed himself because there ain't no contact wound. They're playing that little card so much right there. It's like they don't want it to come out that it's out there. Actually, it's powder. You have one minute left. You know what I'm saying? Right there. That's the gunshot one right there, and it's contained to that one small area. So that means it was pressed, in my opinion, I don't even forget it. Yeah. It was pressed up against the head. The only thing I can figure is they was using this pill to put the wipe of blood. I don't know. Because I know I ran out of the room my God, my God, he shot himself in the head, he shot himself in the head. And me and Kenneth Lord actually met in the door frame. 
You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for episode six. Send us your questions at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hosuski, and our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by George Panos and Michael Yulatowski. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.